Hi, hi, welcome to the Travelling Symphony Movie Club Companion podcast. My name is John. And I'm Katie. Hello, everybody. And this is our companion for Searching for Sugarman, the acclaimed music documentary about a musician called Rodriguez who never realised that he was famous. And what a great podcast we have for you. We had the opportunity to speak with the producer, Simon Chin, who is one of the key figures in moving this documentary forward from the director Malik Benjalil's kitchen table all the way through to Oscar's success. Yeah, and I think what was so great about our conversation was with him was that we really got to see the inner workings of how a documentary gets made, how it gets taken from that inception point right to the end, and also um, what a privilege to understand just a little bit the sort of inner workings of how director Malik Benjadal kind of works and thought and really who he was as a person. And that was really, really special to be able to get those insights given the tragic way his story ended with taking his life only a year after his Oscar. And Simon really spoke with great eloquence about the qualities of Malik, both as a director and as a person. We also had the chance to speak to Tekla Chiolfi, who is a South African music expert. She runs her own website, Tex in the City, and she also recently started a podcast of her own called Tex Talks. We'll make sure we link to both of those in our podcast description. And she gave that perspective that really you can only get from a South African who grew up with Rodriguez as a huge cultural influence. But we'll begin with our conversation with Simon and he started by telling us how he got involved with Searching for Sugar Man in the first place. I had got an email completely out of the blue, a sort of cold email from this young aspiring director called Malik Benjalal. It was a short email, but it may have said something along the lines of, I've got the most amazing story ever i didn't quite work out whether it was passion or hubris you know and i think he kind of gave me what a one-liner you know it's about a guy who didn't realize he was famous so it was kind of intriguing he said he was in la something about he was interviewing quincy jones which i was impressed impressed by uh he said he was coming back to stockholm via london and could he grab half an hour so i said yeah sure he came into my office i guess maybe a week later he was just this incredibly endearing, charming, massively enthusiastic guy who you just couldn't sort of fail to sort of a little bit fall in love with. I mean, he was just that kind of guy. He had this sort of winning sort of energy about him and um, a real sort of guilelessness. I mean, he was, he was, you know, there was something about him that was just like, is this guy a bit on another planet? You know, he said something about how he felt this, this was the most amazing story ever. It was, I think he said something that was better than Man on Wire, which was a film I produced. And, and he said he was going to win an Oscar. And I was like, steady, you know, yeah. let's, 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 let's just take it one step at a time. But you couldn't fail to be impressed by his enthusiasm. And I really liked him. He left me with a cut, actually. He left me with a DVD, and he left me with some some of Rodriguez's music CDs that had been, I think, barely recently re-released. You know, it took me a few days, but I kind of put the DVD in the computer and started watching. And it was pretty rough and ready, but the, you could see the potential, the, the basics of structure that's in the kind of final film sort of in place. You know, it wasn't perfect, and there was definitely more, a lot of work to do. But 
it was basically sort of all there. Malik had the story about how, you know, he'd kind of got some seed funding from, you know, some Swedish broadcasters and uh, the Swedish Film Institute. And, you know, he'd used that funding to get as far as he got to and then run out of money and sort of done every side to do everything himself. He'd had a producer for a, the first year, I think he was in kind of year four, and he'd fallen out with that person years ago. And the rights situation was a mess. He couldn't quite figure out how to finish it. He got the sense that he sort of, he couldn't see the wood for the trees creatively anymore. He needed a creative collaborator. He was basically working on his own and doing everything on his own. And he'd gone back to all these financiers who had given him some seed money and it all basically turned him down and, and that was the thing that was just strange it was like why have they turned him down this has got so much potential you know it's such an amazing story and he's kind of felt that malik had it in him to finish it so i basically said i'd come on board at that point in a weird way it felt like a real punt you know music, music documentaries had at that point weirdly given everything we now know not had a particularly great track record for success at the box office, not a category that was sort of regarded as particularly commercial. And this was a sort of what you might regard as a sort of small story about a musician who nobody had heard of, whose music had kind of, other than in South Africa, clearly, sort of slipped under the radar. But that wasn't the point. For me, I think the thing about stories like this is music docs in particular which i've done a few now it's never about the music is it i mean it's always about the story behind the music and this was an extraordinary story and then i you know you listen to the music and the music is is wonderful the kind of dream scenario is that this little film that sort of no one wanted and that malik sort of had to make on his own or finish on his own sort of becomes this sort of sleeper hit and rodriguez kind of gets discovered all over again you know not just in south africa but in the around the world and and becomes a big star you know wouldn't that be amazing <laughs> so i thought let's give it a whirl try and go on that journey there's a lot of parallels actually between the story of the creation of the film and the rodriguez's story itself and it's it's interesting how that sort of person who who had a great creation but was never really appreciated the first time around and then yeah. almost has a second chance at making it work and then it it really has a steam mm. train effect once it gets gets that little bit extra push yeah. i've often thought about that and how kind of malik was sort of this kind of living according to sort of rodriguez's sort of lessons i mean you know rodriguez is this kind of deeply uncompromising person and artist by the way didn't make him the easiest guy to work with um <laughs> in, in, in many ways i mean he's a lovely guy I and mean, I, I you know i love the time i spent with him but he's his own man like a hundred percent a million percent and this is a guy who did not turn up to the oscars right you know <laughs> yeah. um so there you go that, that, that says it all really yeah i mean malik you know in a sense often talked about how the rejection that he had to sort of contend with from all the kind of financiers, potential financiers, was sort of liberating. And I, I get that. I really get that. And because it, it sort of meant that he could just pursue his own vision with without compromise and without people telling him what, what they 
think his film should be or telling him that someone else should make it or whatever it is that financiers and sometimes producers <laughs> do, you know? Um, and I just love that. I mean, I just, you know, I, I listen, that's kind of the producer that I am and want to be. I, you know, I sort of love to work with new talent. It's sort of the, the best part of the job, you know, so people who, who have real talent and who have a vision, right? Who are working with material that they feel passionately about and they want to make it in a particular way. And I guess the job of a producer in those circumstances, in my view, should be to enable that and to, to, to allow the person to pursue that vision and to make it better if, if possible, you know, to work creatively with that person to sort of execute their vision. This one was different and special and you know that had a lot to do with malik and his creativity one example of that he was sort of working on the film he kind of come to the end of the road in terms of money what he decided to do was was to sort of work on his own and do everything on his own i think he was basically working on his kitchen table he was cutting the film he'd had an editor who hadn't quite worked out with so he was doing it on his own he'd bought composing software very cheaply and was writing a score the, the kind of animated drawings that you see in the film were his. The title sequence that you see in the film was was, was something that he created. Didn't totally realize this then, but he'd evolved a lot of these techniques working on a Swedish arts TV show. He was the guy on that show, almost the sort of DIY filmmaker. He had a kind of he carved out this special role for himself, and he was kind of given these sort of five minute films to kind of create. And he kind of evolved a lot of these techniques and creative ways of working during the course of that of that show. But this film, you know, he basically regarded that these elements that he created as sort of placeholders, that he was going to put them in the film for now. And because this is a kind of big feature doc in his mind, he would kind of switch them out when he had money for kind of professional stuff. To, to me, you know, and to us, you know, it's just something incredibly charming and true about the stuff that Malik had created and you know the film does have this sort of slightly sort of DIY I mean it's, it's all beautiful but it has this sort of DIY quality about it a kind of slightly innocent quality somehow that I, I just think we felt worked rather beautifully and so we decided to just preserve all that stuff as much as possible. You mentioned that when you joined, he was essentially doing everything himself. As a producer, I guess one of your jobs was to come in and make sure that it, it got finished and that there was a finished article at the end of it. What was the the working relationship like there? Was it difficult to come in on something where somebody had such a, a clarity of vision of what they were after? Actually, it really wasn't. That's why the relationship with Malik was so wonderful, you know, and why I enjoyed it so much was because... The truth is that the background to him getting in touch with me was that he had seen Man on Wire during the process of the early stages, I think, of making the film. And he'd been really inspired by it. And I think he had actually, I think, had corresponded with Sugar in the film about, about Man on Wire. Um, There's a lot that I learned subsequently. And I think they basically sort of talked about how, you know, somehow or other, that film had kind of done justice to an amazing true story. And that, that was sort of in a weird way, the sort of bar for them it was like Malik should endeavor to try and emulate 
that process, the process of doing justice to an amazing story in a documentary. He apparently had tried to call, call me a while before. For some reason, I'd never got the message. So there was a sort of desire to sort of find a creative collaborator. And clearly, I think a desire in him to work with me that I think made the kind of collaboration really easy and mutually respectful. Like on the one hand, you know, he wanted to work with me. On the other, I thought he was great. You know, and he was a bit desperate, to be honest, as I'd said. I mean, he kind of run out of steam creatively. I think he wanted to put his faith in someone uh, who was going to help him with his vision rather than sort of smother it or try and make a different kind of film. So I was very respectful of that as I felt I needed to be. He was respectful of me. So it worked, yeah, it worked well. So I guess there were two things. We were sort of strategizing a lot about how to sort of unpick what you might describe as a sort of rights mess. Put really simply, I, I, I needed to sort of make sure that as many rights were going to be available at the time of launching the film as possible so that we could essentially sell the film to a really great US distributor like the one we sold it to, Sony Pictures Classics, who actually were probably in our minds at the time the absolute optimal kind of distributor for this film. He deferred to my experience on that, and so that was fine. We also also had to kind of figure out how to take the film over from this producer that he had fallen out with about three years ago, and that was a little bit more challenging and difficult. So we, we had to work very closely together to strategize about how to do that. We found a good solution to that, which was kind of financial, actually, in the end, and, and we, we figured that out. We raised some money, and, and I raised some money from various sources. So all of that was, you know, the kind of classic job of the producer. What was a little bit less kind of orthodox was that, in a certain way, I sort of became a little bit like the editor that he didn't have. You know, obviously, I wasn't like sitting at a computer pressing buttons. He was in Stockholm doing the editing. But what he was kind of doing was sort of sending me sequences, sending me cuts, very sort of small iterations of small sequences. You know, he was in that kind of phase. You know, he really needed at the end a creative sounding board. I became that in a way that, you know, I sometimes do, but never in quite the granular detail that I was on this project. At the end, it was a little bit about, you know, how are we going to launch this film? What's the, the best sort of festival situation for this film? When is it finished? That was the other big one, because Malik, he could have gone forever. He was literally so hard bitten by the story. You know, he'd been making it for like four or five years at this point. You know, he says he spent a thousand days in the cutting room. It, it was deep in him. He was living it. It was like the ultimate passion project. That informs an awful lot of what, sadly and tragically, I now know about what, ha about what happened to Malik, about the manner in which he died. Just keeping on point at the moment, the, diff yeah, the difficult thing was sort of like telling him, this is it, we're done. It's good, it's, it's, good. it's great. It may not be perfect, but nothing is perfect. It's time to step away. It, it's actually not time, not time to step away, but we're actually going to sort of drag you away. <laughs> that was difficult. That was difficult. And I think there was a lot of sort of fear and anticipation about what would happen next. You know, that's the weird 
difficult thing about these kinds of films. You know, you, you make them a tiny bit speculatively without distribution, without, you know, knowing that a festival like Sundance, for example, where we launched is going to take the film. You know, those things can be so marginal. They can absolutely sort of make or break a film's fortunes. You know, I felt that Sundance was a big opportunity for this film. That became a sort of big driver in sort of getting Manic, Manic to down tools. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we got a late extension from Sundance. And, you know, but then it was actually about getting the film ready for Sundance for a very specific deadline. And, and guess what? Coming up with a title. The film didn't have a title at that point. I, I very vividly remember sitting around in, in my living room in London one evening with my wife on the sofa and our sales agent, Josh Braun, in New York on sort of one phone call and Malik on another and the executive producer, John Batsek, on another and us all sort of trying to brainstorm titles. And I think I was like, what about what waiting for Sugar Man? My wife was like, no, searching. Yeah, searching for Sugar Man. And it was, it was like that. And we literally, we had to come up with a title then and there because we were submitting a film that night to, to meet our deadline. It, it's amazing to think about how these things come together, isn't it? In the final moments. I like personally do feel like the editing is one of the strongest points of the film and it's so, so important to it. The film is actually really, as you sort of put it, almost about this small-time musician because no one knows the guy, right? The way it's edited, though, by the end, you really, really have the sense of just how epic this man is and how influential <laughs> his music is. And just because that might be in a microcosm, in that microcosm, he is Elvis. So by the end of the film, all of those interactions and him doing his performances and speaking to people from South Africa, you really, really do feel the sort of gravity of that situation. And I do, you know, feel very strongly that if it wasn't edited right, those moments could fall flat. You could just be watching it and think, oh yeah, some guy's gone over to South Africa. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I mean, it's the structure that makes this film. I can't claim credit for that. I mean, I certainly helped sort of iron a lot of the bugs out of that structure because i mean the, the very important aspect of that way of telling the story was to strongly misdirect the audience right and to sort of preserve those sort of big narrative turns you know malik talked a lot about how in a weird way he was sort of making a little bit of virtue out of, out of a necessity the necessity being that first of all he didn't have an interview with rodriguez for quite some time he was essentially making the film without Rodriguez. I think Rodriguez was just very reticent uh, to begin with. Malik had sort of resigned himself to that version of the film. We probably wouldn't be sitting here if that, if that had come to pass. But obviously Malik then kind of went out to Detroit and spent time with Rodriguez and sort of gently used all those persuasive abilities and charm that I already talked about to work his magic on Rodriguez and Rodriguez came round. But then, was the, then came the challenge of the actual interview with Rodriguez. This is a man of very few words, right? It's not what you would describe as a classically great documentary interview. And indeed, when I first saw the film, which I, as I said, I loved, I showed it to a few people and not all of them were convinced by him as a character. 
And it's so interesting, isn't it? The kind of what before a film has sort of entered the consciousness and gone on the journey that I described, you're showing it to people who have no context for watching something and asking them to judge it on what basis, you know, is it going to be a great success? You know, it's not exactly a very orthodox film. It wasn't an obviously commercial film. Yeah, I mean, so this is a man of few words. Had he been an incredible interviewee, maybe Malik would have taken a lot longer to arrive at that kind of structure. And I think that that was, that was the point. I think Malik did slowly, because I say he kind of edited over a, a lot longer period than is normal and took his time. And I think he evolved this structure over time. And his actually, his technique, he told me, was that basically every few weeks he would kind of put together a new group of people, kind of group of friends to sort of screen the film to, and, and they would sort of comment. I mean, that, that sort of process could drive anyone completely crazy. But somehow he, he found a way to sort of extrapolate from that and make it work for him. The magic of it is sort of the big reversal, kind of leaning into the sort of perspective of Craig and Sugar on their journey and sort of making it very much about their perspective, you know, very much through the point of view of, of Craig and Sugar until the kind of big reveal, of, you know, that, that he's alive. And then going on this incredible journey with them and Rodriguez. There's a bit of real magic in, in that. It's a fairy tale, isn't it? It's what feature docs should do, right? I was going to ask as well, were you expecting the reception that the, the film received? I know that Malik said that he was going to win an Oscar, but were you expecting it to become this big hit? No, I, 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 may, I may have dreamt of it, you know, of course. I mean, I listen, I'm, I wouldn't describe myself as glass half empty, but nor am I exactly glass half full. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, I, you know, always someone that, that, that wants to imagine the worst alongside the best. So that was that kind of fantasy that it could go on this journey. But I didn't know that it would. And I suppose the first signal that I got, I remember actually quite vividly, I was in Stockholm with Malik doing post-production on the film. It was freezing cold. And I think we'd just gone to a bar after an online session or something. I got a call from the, the programmer at Sundance that I usually deal with, a guy called David Courier, who's still one of the senior programmers there, who mainly sort of is the kind of programmer who deals with documentaries. And I've known him for years and he called me up and he's like, we've seen the film and we love it. We absolutely love it. All nine of us love it. And that never happens. So you're in. I'm sure Malik kind of, I can't really, I remember he was excited. But I think, you know, he, he probably still had it, had this kind of idea that he was heading to the Oscars. I, <laughs> I was blown away by that. And that's, the, you know, that's often the case with Sundance or any festival or any major festival, certainly sort of wanting to take a film. It's sort of the first time that you kind of maybe have a little whiff of what might happen and what, you know, it's the first time that a film kind of gets anointed. I mean, obviously, you know, there are plenty of films that go to Sundance and that's it. They don't quite fulfill their potential but then the next thing i heard was they wanted to open the festival i sort of understood a little bit that maybe this fantasy might become a reality because then you sort of start to think about that situation i've been, I've been to sundance 
many times before, most memorably, I guess, my first time with Man on Wire, where that film sort of gone on a similar journey. You know, we had high hopes for it, obviously, and it's an amazing story that, you know, it's a story of, of, of Philippe Petit illegally high wiring between the Twin Towers. And, you know, so kind of poignant for an audience kind of experiencing that story after the knowledge of what happened to those towers, you know, it was 2008, some years after 9-11. Yeah, so I was kind of think maybe audiences are ready for this film then, but you don't know. And we went to Sundance with very little publicity, didn't know quite understand how to navigate the festival. You know, it happened to be a festival with no big hits in the first week. Very little buzz around films in the first week. The programmers were divided on Man and Wire, as I now understand. So they actually programmed it in the second half of the festival, which is not a good time to... But it was a festival where, unusually, a lot of the buyers were sticking around, waiting and looking for that discovery. And Man on Wire became that discovery. And it was fueled massively by the presence of our central protagonist, the man on the wire, Philippe Petit, who we would kind of spring out of the audience at the end as a sort of surprise. And people were just thrilled by that. You know, he would like literally come down on stage, probably perform a bit of magic. You know, he was this kind of charismatic guy and he just took his moment. And it was just that combination of things at that festival made what happened to that film happen. And it was the same with Sugar Man. It was like nobody knew that Rodriguez was in the building. And you could kind of imagine him not being around or staying away, you know, easily. And somehow or other, yeah, at the end of the film, Malik would go on stage. And we kind of rehearsed this quite carefully. And Malik would go on stage and people were just like blown away by this story and just so excited to see Malik and, you know, get ready for a Q&A and what was going to happen. And Malik would start the Q&A and everyone would think, oh, he's not here. Oh, well, we've got the director. That's good enough. And then Malik would say, well, I have a, I have a little surprise for you. And then and Rodriguez, you know, would sort of like kind of limp up, you know, so like this kind of frail dude with his guitar sort of slung over his back, you know, sunglasses on, just the guy that you, you, you see in the film. And there he is, you know, this charismatic, mysterious figure in the flesh and and I think he would pull out his guitar and play a song and people were just and were just on their feet. The reaction was amazing at every screening we had, you know, and we got Rodriguez to play a concert, you know, and he was amazing and ended up being one of those Sundances. We won the Audience Award and a special jury prize and had the first sale of the festival to Sony Pictures Classics. So it was an incredible beginning. And then I guess it just snowballed from there after that kind of amazing reception and the sale. Then it, it does you say it... that I mean, it was it didn't quite snowball. I have to say. I mean, it was interesting, but yeah, it, was, it got a lot of buzz, and we did a lot of sales off the back of the Sony Classic sales at Berlin, the market in Berlin. Um, we sold the film to Studio Canal in the UK, which is great. So yeah, we, we were sort of lining up distributors and then the film opened um in the summer and sony pictures classics were like really excited they were incredibly ambitious for it but but look it was challenging film to market you know and i think there was a lot of back and forth about how do you market this film it's like the tension is you want to sort of preserve the big reveal you know but if you do that 
essentially what you marketing, you're marketing a film about a dead musician. <laughs> nobody, yeah. Nobody's ever heard of. That was a big problem for Sony Classics. They were absolutely convinced that the way to market the film and the trailer should reveal that he was alive. Mm. And I was really opposed to that. Yeah. I was just instinctively opposed to it. And we all were. And actually, I think our, our UK distributor, Studio Canal, also agreed with us. And I think actually, for me, their trailer is a kind of great halfway house because it teases something. It doesn't spoil the reveal. I understand Sony Classics' problem. I mean, the film sort of opened and, and it sort of didn't open that well, you know, in the US. It, it was pretty soft and it was sort of like it wasn't a disaster. But, you know, often you can judge a film's future box office based on the opening weekend. You know, I look, was looking at those numbers and it was like, oh, this could kind of go either way, but it's probably not going to succeed. Sony Classics, I have to say, were great. I mean, and they were just, they were not intimidated by that. And I think another distributor would be. Their experience really shone through in that moment. I will never forget this because they were sort of basically saying, you know, we need to hold this film in all the cinemas that it's in. And that is a challenge. I think they'd opened it on two, which is the kind of classic American release for platform release two screens, expanded out to about 20, and then hopefully keep building. So it was on about 25 screens, and they they had enough leverage with those cinemas to sort of hold the film for weeks. And they did so, and they started building the word of mouth, really through tweets. And they started getting a film in front of a lot of big people. I think Bob Dylan watched it at one point and loved it. Bruno Mars started tweeting. We were sort of building up this sort of fan base of people in the industry you know who were tweeting about the film and, and studio canal was sort of jumping on this actually and they were creating these amazing sort of tweet adverts with all these tweets sort of stacked up and i was sort of sending those to sony classics and they started adopting that technique and then we had a bit of good fortune a south african journalist who lives in london who had been a massive Rodriguez fan, he was a producer for 60 Minutes, decided to do a piece for 60 Minutes. And 60 Minutes in the US is huge. And it's got a massive audience, six, sorry, 15, 60 million people regularly. Sony Classics decided that they would use this as the opportunity around which to expand the film. Um, this journalist did this amazing piece about the making of the film, about Rodriguez. It was a bit of a spoiler, granted. But it got the film amazing exposure. Somehow, the combination of this sort of building word of mouth and that thing, they expanded it to 150 screens, and it ended up being a hit. So it was it was amazing how that happened. That is fantastic. I think I, t I can see what you mean, because we almost have the same thing on a very, very, very small level. But choosing the film for our movie club and trying to promote it in the preview podcast and talk about it, but without giving away what happens and trying to convince people to watch it that otherwise they're like, what is this, you know, about this yeah. guy? We watched it, obviously, to prepare. And my first note in massive bold is, want to shout it from the rooftops, share it with everyone I know. That's like yeah. the first, that was my <laughs> first feeling after watching the film. And more than any other film we've done so far, 
I want people to watch this. But it's like that's exactly yeah. what you said. I know, it's this I, thing. I, of like, I, I get it. I get it. Well, that's the thing. The, the, the word of mouth did that because basically all you need to say about this film is, I don't, I'm not going to tell you anything about this film, but you have to see it. You have to see it. That's it, really. And that's how you said it. And one of the, gr- the greatest moments for me in this whole journey was that Secret Cinema uh, got in touch and someone from that group had seen the film and just went nuts for it. And they decided just ahead of, a few weeks ahead of the UK release to do a sort of Secret Cinema screening of the film. At a, at a huge venue in East London called the Troxy, fifteen hundred people. Um, I don't. I think they probably use it as a music venue now. So they kind of turned the Troxy into Sugar's record shop, Mabu Vinyl. They had sort of Bratwurst and popcorn, and tons and tons of, of old vinyl records. But nobody, nobody had any idea what the film was. I remember sort of turning up some way into the screening actually to sort of come for the Q&A and I remember turning I was standing in the lobby and I saw someone walk out actually and they were like oh my god it's a it's a documentary and you know they didn't they didn't tell us it was a documentary and I'm leaving and I was like oh god it's cool and I went I went in there and I and I sort of stood in there literally it was packed there were 1500 people in there and I still remember standing on on the sort of balcony just looking out into the auditorium and, 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 you know, it was, you couldn't hear a pen drop. So I was kind of thinking, well, either people are just bored out of their minds. They're falling asleep or they're just wrapped and love every minute of it. And what secret cinema had done, it was brilliant. Actually, they brought Rodriguez over. Well, maybe he was in the UK anyway, because he was here with his band. And what happened was, was that the credits come up and if you, you've seen the film you know the credit music is the baseline of i wonder you know do 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 suddenly you sort of hear a baseline and this spotlight picked out this bassist standing literally above the screen playing the baseline and so suddenly the audience realizes that the movie is kind of going to morph into a concert the lights come up and there on stage is Rodriguez and his band. Everyone storms the stage. It was incredible. And this was the experience that became sort of almost impossible to replicate. The kind of who had no idea, no idea about the story, no idea about Rodriguez, no idea about anything, no idea that the film was going to go on this journey and have been become this hit. It was like the purest experience you could ever imagine. Wow. wow. We, we've been to a lot of secret cinema events and you often come out thinking that was the, the definitive way to watch that film, but that That's is the it. definitive way. It, it really is. I mean, I'm probably, probably a career high, you know, all the prizes and, and all that stuff. That, that really is kind of what it's all about, I have to say. Would be remiss not to speak about Malik and, and what's happened subsequent to the film and the fact that um, that he took his own life only a year after the Oscars. What was your your experience of of having to, to hear that news and living through it? It was genuinely shocking. I had seen him two weeks before, and I'd seen him two weeks before that and in New York. He was actually living in New York with a woman who he had met on the sort of festival circuit, a filmmaker, 
on the face of it, he seemed good. I mean, he seemed he'd had this incredible success with the film. He'd won an Oscar. The journey that we went on from Sundance to the Oscars was incredible. It was particularly incredible for him. Um, I was busy trying to run a company and making other films, and he was living it. You know, he spent years making Sugar Man, and, you know, he was going to enjoy every moment of its success. And Sony Classics was sort of deploying him, you know, as all distributors with awards ambitions do, um, him and Rodriguez to attend every award that the film was nominated for, to go to every party they deemed was going to be helpful to its awards chances, press the flesh, all of that, you know, that was going on. I was doing a bit of it, but, you know, far far from what Malik was doing. And he basically, I think at one stage, Sony Classics had, had a he had a suite at the Beverly Wilshire for three months, I think, which was kind of his base, you know. And this is you know, this is a guy who was basically starving to make a film, you know, a year previously, or maybe a bit more than a year previously. You know, it's, it was mind blowing. He went and met with David Lynch at one point. He wanted to meet him. You know, he and he met everyone. I, like, did he meet Spielberg? I mean, I, he he met lots of people on the journey. I mean. People loved him. You know, he had this incredibly charming presence and way about him, and, and people loved him. And that was a huge part of the awards success, you know, and the ultimate, the Oscar was was down to Malik's charm. I have to say, you know, when it ends and when that process ends, it ends with a big bump. It's almost like falling off a cliff, really. But but actually, you know, the Oscar does it does cast a long shadow and Malik was getting a lot of opportunity that had never previously existed for him. You know, he was getting asked to direct stuff. You know, he was being probably agents calling him up, you know, he was getting offers to, to make commercials, lots of stuff. And I think he was very, very ambivalent about all of it. Cause essentially he had just come off making his dream story, the best story he felt he would ever find. So for him, you know, weirdly, the bar was just incredibly high. And Malik was this sort of creative perfectionist deep within him. You know, he had this fragile creativity, I think, if you can call it that. I mean, you know, this is a guy who I think actually used to worry a lot about losing that creativity, you know. And I think he felt that with Sugar Man, he was... So often, and I think he probably dealt with this kind of internal, personal, deeply personal crisis throughout the making of Sugar Man. You know, he was in love with this story and he wanted to do it justice. And could he do it justice on his own, through, just through his own creative resources? And was he going to be able to deliver on that? And I think those are the sorts of things that worried Malik. Um, he wasn't a depressive. He wasn't a guy who was prone to sadness, but he was a guy who was predisposed, as many of us are, to anxiety. And and anxiety is, is I think, what to some extent what drove him. You know, as I think it does many people. The journey that the film went on sort of delayed the inevitable 
thing of sort of having to just go back to work and to try and find a, another project to do you know he, he kind of rejected all the documentary ideas he was toying with various things that we talked about and there was one idea in particular that he he'd been keen on and wanted to do as a documentary but for all sorts of reasons he didn't think it would quite work as a doc and so actually he embarked on trying to write it as a feature and and the feature sort of which he talked about to me, I, mean, I remember having dinner with him in New York uh, a couple of months for his death, in which he kind of talked incredibly passionately to me about this idea, you know, the idea for this scripted feature that he, that he was writing. It was nothing if not wildly ambitious. I mean, it was just incredibly ambitious. I was just, my, was my overriding feeling it was just like, wow, you know, he's just taken on so much in a completely new genre and form. His kind of whole thing was he wanted to do something in the way that he had made Sugar Man and sort of not take anyone's dime. You know, he'd made some money out of Sugar Man, so he didn't actually need to make money at that particular point. And so he basically sort of rejected all the opportunity to, to sort of work with people to get money. And he was going to make this in his own way, in an uncompromising way, and follow that path because it had worked before. I think what happens, he started sending the script out into the world, and I think he got a couple of rejections. And I think it that hurt. And I think I think that's where his problem started. I think, and I think he he got into the grip of of something that he couldn't get out of. And I didn't realize how bad it was because as i say i saw him on his way back to stockholm from new york in london um he was basically as i now understand it going back there because he was desperate and because he was basically resolved to sort of get back in the saddle and make a documentary and actually he was actually thinking about and, and i think made some active steps to going back to the the arts and culture magazine show that he had started on before this, but just because he, he, he realized he needed to work. So the last conversation I had with him, I had breakfast with him in London, was kind of about, you know, what projects are there that you've got that you might not have considered me for, would just give me an, uh, an opportunity to sort of get back in the saddle and get back to work. I felt that. I understood, actually, from, from having gone through the same process that he'd gone through, you know, with Sugar Man on Man on Wire. And I, I myself had had a little crisis of confidence on the second project that I did after Man on Wire, the next project. I did understand, I felt sensitive to what he was experiencing, a sort of professional crisis, but I did not come close to understanding how bad it was for him until I heard the news of his death. And so it came as a complete shock to all of us who were involved in the film and sort of remains a shock, to be honest. I mean, he, he, you know, he was so full of life and so passionate. I do want people to understand that he was not a depressive, you know, certainly not, that was not my experience of him. You know, he was someone who was the opposite in a way. He was full of vitality and life and, and energy and passion. Um, and that's how he should be remembered. What have you taken from him, the way that he worked, the way that he was, into your own your own life and your own working processes going forward? Are there any aspects of his his character, his work uh, ethics that you 
you've taken forward with yourself? You know, it's, it's that's a difficult thing to sort of articulate. I mean, I guess I've sort of absorbed the relationship that I had and that and the experience I've just described into my life. And it is part of my life and part of who I am now. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. I mean, obviously, it is a bittersweet story. It's an incredible story. And the journey that we went on was sort of mind-blowing. I got the opportunity to sort of live it vicariously through him. Because I, you know, Man on Wire was my baby, I guess. And you know, I'd originated that. And winning the Oscar for that was obviously incredibly exciting for me personally and changed a lot for me with sugar man you know i'm certainly not diminishing the experience for myself but the exciting thing was sort of taking a little bit of a back seat actually and living that experience again through the eyes of malik and guy help trying to guide him through it a bit as best i could but i really did not regard that film never will as my baby it wasn't you know it was his i helped him and he was incredibly grateful to me for the help that i gave and i'm i feel proud of the role that i played but i you know but he it was his you know it was his experience and i was able to sort of see that process differently by living it a second time i see it again once again very differently in the knowledge of what subsequently happened to Malik, I'm much, well, I'm more clear-eyed about about that process and about the sort of bullshit that surrounds it and the the way in which it's not straightforward for people. Success is a difficult thing to manage. That kind of that level of success is it can really screw with you and. And, you know, and awards are great. And I've been on that journey a few times with a few films now. The last film, the last feature I produced, Tell Me Who I Am, got a lot of acclaim and a lot of um, plaudits, but it did not quite make it in awards terms. It just didn't quite connect with the voters. And, you know, I was, I had, deep hopes for that film and I particularly for the director Ed Perkins you know as a young emerging director an incredibly talented guy I'm extremely proud of that film but I can be pretty sanguine about what happened and you know in a way that maybe if I hadn't had the experience I'd had with Malik or with Man on Wire I, I would feel very differently so the lesson here is that it is about the work and it's about the people that you work with. And those are the two really important things. You know, if you're not passionate about your work and the work that you're doing, and if creating isn't sort of an end in itself, then there's not a lot of point, really. And if you're not surrounding yourself with people who, with whom you can have a kind of creative connection and who you like and who are worth spending all that time with then there really isn't much point so i guess those are the sort of bigger lessons that that one one learns through these kinds of experiences i think for me that's the lesson that i actually take away from the film and also now from you hearing more much more about malik's story is that it's the process that really matters and for true artists it really is the process that's the important thing 
what comes after is superfluous to that and can also actually success can bring a lot more problems and and stress and it's it's interesting that you you use the word artist because it's often a word that i resist in my profession you know i, I often feel that directors are often they're craftspeople they're, they're kind of executing a vision based on the material in front of them you know they're sort of like good craftspeople sort of hewing a piece of granite or whatever it is but i actually do think it's appropriate to think of malik as a true artist you know he had that sensibility that was kind of what drove him it's nice to sort of remember him in those terms what a privilege it was to speak with simon and how fitting i think to end on the way that he would like to remember Malik as that true artist. And now we'll hear our conversation we had with Tekla Chiolfi, the South African music expert. It was really fantastic to speak with her and get that insight into how it felt in South Africa during the time that Rodriguez was famous there without him knowing and also subsequently that kind of cultural influence that he's had but also we chatted a little bit more widely about you know music in general and political influence and I thought that was just really lovely to get that insight. And Tekla told us it was actually her mum and dad who really sparked her interest in Rodriguez. My parents were the ones who felt an affiliation towards his music so my mother is British South African born in Cape Town and my dad is Italian born in Venezuela grew up in Brazil and moved to South Africa when he was a teenager in the thick of things during apartheid. My father like didn't understand what was going on politically and socially because he came from Brazil where people were fully integrated, black, white, it didn't matter. And because of this, my father grew up in South Africa with this crazy anti-establishment, punk-rooted spirit of sorts, which was fueled by soul and rock and roll and incidentally, the music of Rodriguez. So you have Rodriguez talking about Mary Jane and asking like, I wonder how many times you've had sex. And in my parents' day, like that was so taboo. You did not, you did not sing, you did not talk. You didn't even think about things like that. And I guess my dad's musical taste spilled over to me as most influences do to your kids. Well, I mean, the influences that you, you want to admit anyway. <laughs> so I grew up knowing the music but not knowing the story or knowing the myth. That I discovered with everybody else along with the documentary. I kind of feel like if Rodriguez's story had to happen today, like the entire myth of Rodriguez could have probably been solved by like a quick Google search and a Facebook talk, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. They mention in the film, um, one of the guys who owns the record shop says, you know, there was three, three records in every South African household Abbey Road, Bridge Over Troubled Water and Cold Fact. Was that something that you remember as well, hearing it a lot then um, from through your parents? You've literally hit the nail on the head. <laughs> Funny story, Stephen Siegerman, mm. who was one of the two guys, so it was Stephen Siegerman and, and Craig Bartholomew who set out to, to find Rodriguez. Stephen is a bona fide legend in Cape Town and I grew up in Cape Town. And he owns a... <laughs> Uh, a vinyl store called Mabu Vinyl that you see featured in the beginning of the documentary. Now, I have been trawling Mabu Vinyl for years. And it, it used to be on the same road as my university. 
So every afternoon on my way home, I would pop in and Stephen would normally be there like to answer any kind of musical question that you had because the guy is honestly, he's like a musical encyclopedia. When the documentary came out and he became so popular and the vinyl store became so popular, all of a sudden I was like, I know that guy. Oh my God, he's the best. <laughs> the first time I saw the documentary, uh, I went to a very small independent cinema called the Labia in Cape Town, which is actually just around the corner from Stephen's vinyl store. I was probably skipping class or something like, I don't know. <laughs> and I remember when I watched it immediately after I watched it, I thought, how do I not know the story? It's so layered and it's so in depth and so beautiful. And at the time I was also working for a, a free street press music publication. And my editor asked me if I wanted to write a piece about the documentary. And so obviously I said, of course, like any budding music journalist would jump at an opportunity like that. Subsequently, I interviewed Stephen and Craig and I had these like huge stars in my eyes while I was interviewing them. I was such a fan girl. Looking back on it now, it was a very special experience to hear the story firsthand, like from the source about how when, when they were on the internet, they were using a dial-up modem and things like that, you know, that we take for granted today. It comes through really strongly in the documentary, that passion that they both had for the music and for the the story and the, the search for the man himself it's one of the really great moments in the film is when um steven's recounting the first phone call he had with rodriguez and waking up in the middle of the night katie and i watched it again last night and he said you know that was one of the best moments of my life we stopped it and katie was like you know sometimes that f sounds like hyperbole but you know it's true in the context of this film because of the journey you've been on with him up to that point I thought the exact same thing. That was also a moment that stood out to me just because of how like beautifully genuine he was about, oh my gosh, like this is this guy, this guy that I've been listening to for years with my friends and my family and he's on the other side of the phone. That's crazy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's literally like the, the equivalent of having Elvis come back from the dead and you're the first person he calls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how it would feel. Did the movie have a big impact in South Africa then? The most poignant fact about the release of Searching for Sugar Man and its popularity is that it exposed the legend of Rodriguez to like a whole new audience, which is beautiful. Since the release of the documentary in 2012, he's performed in South Africa twice, if my memory serves me correctly. Once in 2013, uh, just after the documentary came out, and then again in 2016. And during the 2013 uh, concert, after you know all of the Oscar glory and stuff, I remember my parents went to that. He apparently said to the audience, thank you for keeping me alive. And then he said how the Oscars were secondary to him being there and how he just wanted to come back and pay homage to South Africa for keeping his memory alive. And I just thought that that was so beautiful. And then the second time he came back in 2016, I actually went with my mother. And I remember as old as he is now, he was still preaching about, in between songs, he would preach about religion and climate change. And he spoke a lot. And I was very, I mean, I'd love to know now what he thinks about like Donald Trump and this phenomena of fake news. I'm sure that Rodriguez would have more than his fair share to say and for us to listen to because he's quite a outspoken activist like that which I quite like. After the concert my mother and I went for a drink and she's a huge Beatles fan which also throws back to what you said earlier 
I mean, apart from her always going on about how sexy George Harrison was, <laughs> after the concert, she said to me that cold fact was more popular in South Africa than the Beatles' Abbey Road during apartheid. The documentary is obviously like shone a, a bright light on it, but people worshipped this album when it came out and it just spread in South Africa like wildfire. They touch on it very briefly in the documentary, but one of the first white anti-apartheid movements called the Full Frey uh, movement, which, which means free bird uh, translated, is derived from rock and roll and they were all influenced by Rodriguez. I think without knowing it, Rodriguez was changing society, which was always something that struck me the most about the documentary and him. I think the, he, the fact that he had no idea what was happening so far away in Africa, like all places, you know. And I think it's so fantastic because, like you said, he is so political with his music and with his words. It was like they were so powerful that they did what they needed to do, those words, without him even being there. The musical climate of South Africa is very different today. Like we are um, a very different looking and different sounding country, but Rodriguez's music will always be a part of South African history. And even though we, we may feel like the success of the documentary has taken him away from us, like he doesn't belong to us anymore, <laughs> as selfish as that might sound, but, but his music is entrenched in our cultural DNA. And I think that's a very beautiful thing. So do you still see echoes of his influence in contemporary music and in artists that are emerging now? Not artists on the mainstream. I think now our music climate is driven more by American culture and American mainstream music. So it's much more hip-hop oriented, much more rap oriented. But in South Africa specifically, something very beautiful has happened over the last five years where we, yes, we're looking to America for influences, but now we've started to look at ourselves, at our own culture. I mean, things like... Black Panther on a global scale have shifted the focus and like the power balance a bit and the eyes of the world are on Africa um, as a continent for a whole bunch of different kinds of influences from music to fashion to textiles. Um, I feel like Africa is finally finding its identity. So it's a very, very exciting time to be here. On the surface, people might not necessarily sound like Rodriguez, the importance of his music, like the whole discography and the canon, it's there. There are some um, South African acts that sprang up from the full frame movement, um, the kids that are still influenced by that, that are making rock and roll, that are making soul. You can hear that influence there. That, I mean, his music is more, more important and more relevant now than ever. I think it's timeless. I don't think it'll ever necessarily like, lose its, its sheen. When Cold Fact was released in the 70s, I remember my, my mom told me, my mom's also quite a, quite a big fan, she told me that like Rodriguez toured and he tried to make a name for himself in America, but there was so much going on musically at the time that like he just couldn't compete. If you look at what was going on, it was Marvin Gaye's What's Going On and it's the own Sticky Fingers. And then on the other side of the pond, your end of the world, John and Katie, <laughs> you've got a young David Bowie who's ready to shake things up. So, I mean, along comes Rodriguez and Americans are like, well, we've got Bob Dylan. So thanks, but we're cool, you know? And it just makes you think how good music was then. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's crazy. And like Rodriguez was signed to uh, Sussex. And at the same time, uh, Sussex had just signed Bill Withers. They were, you know, spending more time on like developing him. So like Rodriguez kind of fell to the wayside. What Searching for Sugar Man has done is that it's given a whole new 
generation the chance to discover his early body of work and hear it with fresh ears and with no associations. I don't know what it's like to listen to Sugar Man or I Wonder and feel what my father felt. I only know what I feel, but I also assume that what I feel is radically different because of my social and political circumstances today. Like it's just, it's night and day. Uh, the establishment blues, which became anthemic protest against apartheid, um, and also the cultural conservatism and, and, and those taboos that I was talking about earlier. But that's the beauty of music. It's like, it's completely subjective. Do you see the a role of music in uh, challenging the established political narrative in South Africa today, the way that Rodriguez was in the 70s? You know, I ask musicians this question all the time uh, when I interview them. The answers that I get back, it's one of two things. It's either more artists are not overtly political and they should be because of everything that's going on in our country, corruption-wise. And trust me, there's a, there's a lot going on in South Africa. <laughs> so that's the one answer. And then the second answer is, well, you know, I can't tell people what to say. I can't tell musicians what kind of music to make. You're either feeling it or you're not. I think I agree with the second sentiment, although I love music that is overtly political and that says something because I'm all about lyrics. Um, my, you know, the music that I like is very lyrically driven. It's totally up to the artist. You don't want to force somebody to write music that they're not feeling because then it just eats the whole purpose of the art of creating music. So I wish that there were more artists like Rodriguez taking a stand against all of the corruption that we have going on here in this country. But then again, it's got to be, for want of a better word, organic. It's very difficult in these times, because if you make a stand or if you say anything, you will get absolutely pilloried from one side or another. So perhaps maybe today it's harder to write political music mm. because of that backlash. If I was a musician, especially if I was a pop artist or a mainstream musician, I would not take any kind of stand. I would, I would just be middle of the road. Like you said, the backlash that you face because, you know, online and social media and these things spread like wildfires so quickly. Um, it takes like 10 years to build a reputation, but then in 10 seconds it can be destroyed because, you know, somebody said something on Twitter. So, um, you know, I would, I would either be like middle of the road and super, super safe, or I would be a crazy anti-establishment anarchist. <laughs> yeah. And that's just about it for our Travelling Symphony companion podcast for Searching for Sugarman. It's one I think that we're both particularly proud of. And the conversation with Simon really adds so much to your understanding of the film. I feel like it's something that you really just couldn't have gotten anywhere else. And something we've been thinking about for the last few weeks is how these podcasts can work on their own as a standalone piece of content. So if there's anyone you know who hasn't joined us for the live watch along, but you think would really enjoy the film and really get a lot out of the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you could maybe send it along to them and then just give us some feedback to let us know, does this work without the lives? Obviously we think it would, but it would always be good to hear the feedback from other people. So make sure you join us next Friday for a bit of a change of pace. It's going to be Jurassic Park and we will be having our preview podcast out in the next few days. All right then, see you soon. Bye. 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 bye, bye. bye, bye.